You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 324. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey son, hey son, how are you? Where's Annika again? I don't know. Have we misplaced mm. her again? No, I'm I'm afraid she yeah. she got sick. Yeah. You know, this is how it is to be a young parent or parent with young children. Yes. They yes. come home with every bug you can imagine and you're sick all the time. It's just the game. Yeah. yeah. Been there, done that, can't do and, anything about it. Everybody and says as a the same very, thing. very, as a very, very tough mum, she was last week when we recorded the interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, she couldn't be without because she was the tough one taking care of the others in the family, the two babies. And yeah. now she falls ill, so that's, wow. that's terrible. So, yeah. Annika, if you're listening to this, I hope by the time this goes out, you will be back up on your feet and all is well. Yeah, get better. <laughs> we miss you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how are you? I I am well. I don't have small children, so uh, no bug ever comes to me. I haven't got small children either, but today and yesterday, I came down with something that I have no idea what it was. It, it wasn't terrible, but it brought me down to well. like the energy levels of my batteries. They were completely drained. So, yeah. All right. So I'm glad we do this remotely then. So for people who don't know. <laughs> yes, I'm not. <laughs> I'm sitting in Sweden. Andras is sitting in Sekesvehervar in uh, uh, Hungary. I always want to call it Hungary in Hungary. In ha- ha- Hungary. <laughs> you can call it Magyarország. That's that's what we call it. Okay. Now we'll have to practice that, I think. And especially that you've been here and you've been here in Sekesvehervar as well. And I and you keep amazing me how well you can pronounce the name of it because it's very tough. It's very tough and uh, foreigners usually can't learn how to say it properly. I've practiced for months. So. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. <laughs> and uh, um, I have to say that we are very, very close to many, many surrounding countries, one of which is Austria and mm-hmm. the Austrian capital Vienna is very close to where I live. It's about a two-hour drive. Aha, that is perfect when you want to go to a congress, right? Exactly. <laughs> Any particular one in mind? <laughs> I have one that I can recommend. The European Skeptics Congress in uh, Vienna, 9th to 11th of September. We mm-hmm. will be there. You will be there. Everybody will be there. And <laughs> it will be a great time. We will put again, of course, the link to how you sign, yeah. uh, how you sign up, how you register, and you can see the program. It is going to be great. Can't wait. Absolutely, absolutely. And and do make sure that not only you but your friends come as well. So spread the word. Let everyone know because this is the European Skeptics Congress. So we want people from all parts of Europe. And indeed the world, if they're interested, I understand that we have people registering from outside of Europe as well. Yeah, from the US. Um, from the US. Oh, wow. Really, really good. So um, 
please do spread the word. Please let everyone know around you who might be interested because it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be some kind of entertainment as well. But hanging out with like-minded people, hanging out with skeptics from weird with countries. <laughs> it's, yeah, with us as well. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, this is one of the things that I look forward to about personal meetings and these conventions. We can hang out in person because usually we can't. We, we don't really meet that often. How long is it that since we met, Anders, in I person? I don't know, but it's been years. It's years. Um, it's years. Yeah, we're talking about years, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy because we talk every week, but uh, yeah. One of the things that that is weird about podcasting as well is that you get so familiar with the voice of people and uh, a group of people that I experience that with is the hosts of the SGU. Yes, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And I remember when I when I saw them for the first time at QED, I think it was a pre-event, a, an extravaganza, I think it mm-hmm, was, mm-hmm. before QED. That was absolutely amazing. But it was weird. And they have often talked about that as well, that uh, some people come up to them, talking to them as if they had been like good friends for years, but it's <laughs> completely one-sided. <laughs> it is. That's because right. they, 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 these people had no idea who, who the, the other people listening to them are. But wh- why it's good that, that we mention it, Stephen Novella, the person that we, we think very highly of, and who is the host of um, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and he blogs on Neurologica and on Science-Based Medicine blog. Yeah, he's just an amazing guy. He's amazing, but he's he's amazing in a weird way as well. He cannot be one person. He have to has to be several different Extremely people. Extremely productive. I don't know how he gets the time to do all the yeah, things. Yeah, I don't he know. Does. The latest thing that he's done, probably not even the latest, is about to come out uh, in September. Their new book. It's the novella book that I like to call it because the guys at the SGU, Stephen Novella and his brothers, Bob Novella and Jay Novella, all of whom are part of the team of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, they wrote a book a couple of years back, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, with Cara Santamaria and Evan Bernstein. But this one is built on their fascination of all things future, all things about the future and sci-fi and everything. And they decided to write a book applying skepticism to everything that we think about the future. And that's a really cool concept. So the title is The Skeptic's Guide to the Future. And I really can't wait to get my hands on the book and what they have to say about futurism and uh, how doomed we are in terms of uh, what the future <laughs> ahead of us is. Because we are doomed. <laughs> the question yeah, we, is we, what we, will we, kill we, us. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what they think about the technologies and knowing how meticulously they can work on things like building up an argument about technology. I love listening to Bob on the show talking about physics and uh, physics related stuff it's absolutely mind-blowing i think his enthusiasm is absolutely contagious so come through very nicely and uh, jay can be very enthusiastic as well 
and he's very knowledgeable about technological stuff too. And uh, Steve is just an all-out master skeptic. He has a very analytical mind and he can put all that into words very, very clearly. And I really admire that. And uh, I think this means that this book will be an absolute must read. So I can't wait for it to come out. I have already pre-ordered mine, so... Mm. Go ahead and do that. You can do that now. Oh, I haven't. I haven't yet, but I can do it. I will do it right after the recording of the show. Do that. Do that. Because we do have our own show, you know? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's called the European Skeptics Podcast. And uh, we occasionally ponder on whether it was a good idea to name it that. <laughs> because um, I really hope that um, in some way we can reach even people who are not necessarily identifying as skeptics. But uh, yeah. Our listeners can help uh, in that by spreading the word, by letting other people know that uh, we are here. If you think that what we do is worth sharing, then please do so. And uh, if you want to support us uh, even further, then you can do it um, in other ways as well. Absolutely. You can go to patreon.com slash the ESP. And uh, there you get early warnings for whenever we release a new episode and uh, you pledge to support us with whatever you want to, like one dollar or euro or you can do it in different currencies now per episode that we release. You can also set a cap. We are a weekly schedule, so it is four times per month or sometimes five. But if you want to make it a one euro every month, you just set a cap on one euro and that's fine. And we love you for supporting us. Yeah, and we really appreciate that. It helps us move forward and go on with uh, producing the show. And if you have any ideas, if you want to let us know, what would you like to see? Especially if you're a patron, if you have any ideas of how to differentiate between the different categories or levels, what you would like to see and hear from us. We always appreciate the feedback. We always appreciate people getting in touch. So you can do it at uh, info at theesp.eu. There is a contact form as well on the website on theesp.eu. But enough of that. I think we should focus now on providing the actual show. And the first part of the show is usually the segment that we call Twish, or This Week in Skeptical History. This week, we celebrate a well-known person born on the 8th of May, 1926, his name is Sir David Frederick Attenborough. Ooh. And <laughs> still around. He's still around. He's almost 100 years old. Wow. 96. Absolutely amazing. And although he doesn't really need an introduction, I think we all know him for, for being a brilliant broadcaster, writer, and uh, naturalist, making or narrating educational and eye-opening television programs on anthropology and natural history and whatnot. Just to name a few, Life on Earth, The Private Life of Plants. I love that. I, I, I remember <laughs> the amazement that I felt when I saw the, the growing of plants, the growing of leaves and all that in time-lapse videos. It was mind-blowing to me. The Life of Birds, Life in the Undergrowth, the same, same thing. It was showing things that we hadn't seen before. And these are only just a few to mention from his very long career of more than 70 years in public service at the BBC. 70 freaking years! <laughs> yeah, it's hard to summarize. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I, I'm not, gonna, not even going to try. 
but on his programs, he usually doesn't play the role of a skeptic per se. He tends to portray more like a classic naturalist character, which is not to say it's an act, because he's a genuine figure of the utmost curiosity about nature and how the world works. But with his two-part series, Are We Changing Planet Earth? and Can We Save Planet Earth? He takes on the role of an investigator, not merely stating the facts that we know about the phenomenon of climate change, but also how we learn them and how sure we can be about it. This was a clear act of sceptical advocacy for accepting scientific findings, I think. Hmm. And the other thing, from a sceptical point of view, is that he's been asked about his religious beliefs, or the lack thereof, on several occasions, and why he thinks evolution is a fact. There was one particular time that he said, I have a quote here, people write to me that evolution is only a theory. Well, it is not a theory. Evolution is a solid historical fact, as you could conceive. Evidence from every quarter. What is a theory is whether natural selection is the mechanism and the only mechanism. That is a theory. But the historical reality that dinosaurs led to birds and mammals produced whales, that's not theory. (laughs) End of quote. So... Yes, he sums it up perfectly, and he has spoken out against so-called intelligent design and uh, the teaching of creationism at school. But even though he has been critical about the usual kind of religious belief in a god, he has taken more like an agnostic stance on God, which is, I believe, what a skeptic should probably take anyway, right? Mm. It's not much of a skeptical stance to state that God doesn't exist. Because it's the first rule is that you cannot prove the non-existence of something. So, (laughs) do you remember when Stephen Fry gave his very famous rebuke of the idea of a benevolent God figure Mm -hmm. uh, to to the the, Irish interview? interview, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he brought up the example of a worm that burrows itself into children's eyes, rendering them blind, etc., etc. Not that I think it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a terrible thing. But he's probably got that from Attenborough, because he had talked about their parasite, which is called Oncocerca vulvulus, in several programs, and it's a terrible parasitic worm. Hmm. So he even stated something very similar to what became famous from the mouth of Stephen Fry. Uh. So (laughs) that's very interesting. But leaving that side of his skepticism, as a result of having seen more of the planet we live on and knowing and understanding what science has to say about what we're doing to this planet and the, the other living organisms that we share it with, he has become the greatest advocate for conservation efforts, preserving the natural health of our environment and fighting human-induced climate change. At the beginning, he was somewhat agnostic about climate change as well, but he had accepted that this is the scientific consensus now and that he understood it and he saw... Imagine that if you're doing these shows and these documentaries for 60, 70 years, and you've seen so much, he has said on many occasions that he has seen the decline of our natural resources and natural beauty as well. He said so several times. I have seen it myself, what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lifetime of change. And if it can be so fast that it can happen within the lifetime of one person, then we're doing something very, very wrong. It's a good thing that he used his influence to try and help the cause. And he gave a very motivational speech at the opening ceremony of uh, COP26 in Glasgow back in November 2021. And he stated that he sees humans as, quote, the greatest problem solvers to have ever existed on Earth, end quote. 
urging all of us to act now and being very optimistic about this proposed action too. So he gave us the opportunity to respond. And a couple of days ago, in honor of his dedication to research, documentation and advocacy in protecting and restoring nature, the UN Environment Programme gave him the Champions of the Earth Lifetime Achievement Award. Wow, so, I hadn't heard that. That's great. Yeah, so he's, very he's well now deserved. in a very, absolutely, and he's now in a very illustrious company. Mm. And to finish on, I'd like to recommend watching a YouTube video, obviously the link will be available, that was made for QED 2018. Do you remember that, Pontus? <laughs> ah, the, yeah. <laughs> it was titled The Migration of the Skeptic. That was very, very fun. It was very funny, and they used shots from his documentaries. It was narrated by someone else, so it was a voiceover, someone else's voice, but it really fooled a lot of us. It fooled me. It was was (laughs) hilarious, and even avid fans like myself couldn't really work out immediately whether it was actually him. It was brilliant stuff. Everyone will find it real funny, and if you were there when it was on (laughs) at QED then it would bring back very, very lovely memories. So then you would really want to look at it. So let's all celebrate the 96th birthday of Sir David Frederick Attenborough. Live long and prosper, sir. (laughs) (laughs) We admire you. All right. So with that, I think there is another fairly old guy that (laughs) we usually, (laughs) usually mention on the show. So Pontus, is there something you can poke the Pope for this week. All right, so I will at least talk about Frankie. I'm not sure there's not be a lot of poking, but uh, there's a lot to talk about, mainly that he gave an interview with uh, Corriere della Sera, mm-hmm. a big Italian. Uh, Italian newspaper. Mm-hmm. It was actually published today, uh, as we record this, the 3rd of May. We learned in that interview that, firstly, yes, he does have a knee problem, and uh, he will have gotten a shot in the knee by the time you hear this. So he is just about... So there's been a lot of talk about he's been very, very immobile for some time now, and uh, but he has a problem with his knee. That's fine. He's 80, 85? I think he's 85. So it's, Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, not yeah. quite 96, but still. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a, respectable it's age. It's to be expected. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's so bad that he couldn't, in this interview, he couldn't go get up and, and shake hands with the reporter. He said, I'm sorry, I have to sit down because, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So that's the knee. Doesn't matter very much in the big scheme of things. What I also learned in this interview is that in Italy, they apparently don't hesitate to call him Papa Bergoglio. Did you know that, Andras? Yeah, yeah. I thought they call him Papa Francesco, but Papa Bergoglio, Bergoglio, of course, is his real name. It's so his surname, yeah. Yeah, it's his surname. <laughs> so, okay, fine. A little disrespectful, I thought, but uh, no. Almost all of this interview was about the Ukraine war, and Frankie seems to have stopped messing about when it comes to talking about Russia. He still doesn't say directly. He doesn't name Russia as the aggressor, but it's, imp- it's implied in all of what he says. So it was a real bomb, I think, when he said, and I quote, 25 years ago, we experienced the same thing with Rwanda, end quote. So that is as close as calling this genocide as you can get. And we all know who's doing the genociding in this mm. war. Mm-hmm. Frank also said that he talked to Zelensky already on the first day of the war. He hasn't tried to directly call Putin 
Instead, what he did, after a couple of weeks, he asked Pietro Parolin, who is the Secretary of State of the Vatican, and actually one of the guys in the running to become the next Pope, if you read the speculations. Anyway, he told Parolin to send a message to Putin, and the message apparently was that Frankie wanted to come and meet with Putin in the Kremlin. As of now, there has been no reply. I don't know. I, I don't know if I should be surprised. I, for some reason, Frankie still believes that he can act as a mediator or a negotiator in big conflicts like this. I, I don't know if that's the role of the Pope. It, maybe it used to be in the past. I'm not sure if it is uh, nowadays. Mm. Because Putin has his own Pope, you know, Patriarch Kirill. We have mentioned him several times since the war started. And it seems more and more clear uh, whether it's sincere or not. Religion is very closely tied to this war, at least from Putin's point of view. Kirill is seen with Putin quite a lot in photographs and in video. And he, Kirill, has also endorsed this atrocious aggression from day one. So, bearing that in mind, Frankie said, or thought, I guess, that if I can't talk to Putin, I'll try to talk to Kirill as well. And uh, <laughs> he wanted to convince Kirill that this is not the way of the church. This is not, they, they're not part of the exact same church, but it's very similar. And uh, come on, Kirill, this is not the way of uh, religion. The two of them, by the way, were scheduled since before the war to meet up in Jerusalem on 14th of June. So Frankie says he arranged a Zoom meeting with Kirill to try to convince him about working for peace instead. But what instead happened, Frankie says, is that Kirill started that meeting by reading out a justification for the war for 20 minutes from a paper reading out word for word the justification for the war, like a parrot, parroting uh, Putin's nonsense. And, and Frankie says he replied, as, quote, that I, I don't understand anything about this. Brother, we are not clerics of state. We cannot use the language of politics, but that of Jesus, end quote. So that, that's how popes talk, I guess. <laughs> Kirill did not seem to take that very well. And the proposed meeting between the two in Jerusalem is now off. Won't happen. So two popes, if you will, talking to each other and not <laughs> not agreeing on anything. Then Frankie said something in this interview. He said something that is uh, unintentionally hilarious to me. He said this about Kirill. He said, quote, the patriarch cannot transform himself into Putin's altar boy, end quote. And with all of the Ooh. sex abuse that's been going on, I cannot help that is seeing a picture you should never imagine. Where, you know, with Kirill oh, yeah, yeah. kneeling in front of Putin, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I won't get into it. This is my bias. This is what I saw when I heard this, and um, I don't know if Frankie realized how funny he was. Probably not. <laughs> I almost managed to go on with, with this um, episode without mentioning Orban, but I oh. have to do that. <laughs> okay. Did you know that on that very interview that you, you are now talking about, mm -hmm. the Pope said something else? Because okay. a couple about of days Orban. before that, he mm -hmm. had met Orban. Yes, that's right. Yeah, the Hungarian prime minister. And... They were talking about a couple of things, and, uh, well, Orban being in a very good relationship with Putin, basically being his poodle. Or altar boy, yeah. 
altar boy, yeah. The Pope says so to Corriere della Sera that when he met Orban, Orban told him that the Russians had a plan to stop the war on 9th of May. 9th of May, yeah, that's right. Because that is victory day for for Russians and they celebrate it as the surrender of the Nazi Germany to the Allied forces in 1945. Mm. How Orban would know that this was the plan, I don't know. But let us Mm. deal with this as a prediction. 9th of May means next Monday. So a couple Mm. of days after this goes out. Let's see what happens, because there could, there could be two things. One, he's wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. Then he just gets even more ridiculous than he already is. If he's right, we would all be very happy, but that would definitely mean that he's in the inner circle. He knows something, so he is the one that everyone has to turn to when they want to talk to Putin. And that's an interesting position. I can't wait to see whether this happens. And even though I I prefer him being seen as ridiculous, (laughs) but if that's what it takes for for this fucking war to end, I think it's... Yeah, it's worth it. I can Uh, live with it. Definitely worth it. (laughs) I I think there's a lot of predictions or or guesswork, I would say, that what's going to happen on the 9th of May. The most pessimistic that I've seen is that this is when Putin will officially declare this no longer being a special operations but the start of a real war Mm -hmm. and uh let's hope that doesn't happen yeah because if if this is just a special operation you don't want to see what a war is yeah so i don't believe that i'm saying this but i this time i want orban to be right (laughs) yeah me too me too thank you very much for thank you well, poking two popes with one stone or <laughs> yeah. one one stick. Pontus oh. pokes Putin's pope is today's uh, title. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much for that, and let's move on to discussing the news. And uh, now that we we've already talked about Russia and uh, what Russia is doing and what Putin is uh, up to. It doesn't really seem as though he would like to stop the war anytime soon, but rather he would like to recruit people to support the war and even to act as soldiers in this war and provide a supply for a long, long time to come. What am I talking about is that they just launched an educational program, or at least they call it that, that is called a patriotic education. They launch a couple of uh, different campaigns, and they target Russia's youth, and they try to encourage them to try to see the whole war in Ukraine as the continuation of the Second World War, which they call the Great Patriotic War, because that was built up by the propaganda machine in the Brezhnev period between 1964 and 82. Looking back at the the Second World War, it was the great achievement of the Russian people, of the Soviet people, to stop the Nazis. Yeah, funny how they don't mention that for the first two years they were actually on Germany's side with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. They exactly. Didn't, they yeah. actually invaded Poland while yeah, part being of it, friends. Part of it, yeah. yeah, part of Poland while being part of the pact with uh, Germany. 
Yeah, and the Baltic states as well. So yes, yes, right. yes, of yes. So so that is uh, graciously forgotten um, mm. or left out of these uh, textbooks that they use. The Soviet military education was trying to characterize the war as such, and they tried to condition young people to grow up into adults that are enthusiastic about the Soviet system, and they're very proud and patriotic, etc., etc. Now, the same thing seems to be happening. What is being done is that that they launched a ceremony where not only school children from different parts of the country were present, but also something that even the name of outrages me big time. It's the Russian Young Army Forum. And by the Young Army Forum, we are talking about children being enthusiastic about becoming soldiers in the long run to serve their country out of patriotism and that is not only cruel it's monstrous i mean only a monster can do that to children Mm. i understand that young children especially boys are drawn to violence in a way so it's in our nature obviously we like as boys as young young boys we love to play with swords with pistons with guns and all that but doing it for real thinking about actually becoming a soldier to serve your country and being that patriotic is absolutely a different issue. And uh, now they are separating these children into smaller groups. So first of all, they put the symbol Z or Z in the middle of all this effort. It's not part of the Cyrillic alphabet, and it has become the symbol of this effort, this this war, the symbol of the war. And those who support it, they use it very often. And even in family homes, you can find expressions of that as well. So the youngest ones, they are drawing Zs all over the place and coloring pictures of it and standing in formations of the shape of the letter. That is the starting point. That is the first point. And the older children, who are old enough to write and be like very considerate and kind to others, they write letters to soldiers who are currently serving in Ukraine, waging war against Ukrainian people. Obviously, there is that group that is almost at conscription age, and they give them opportunities to familiarize themselves with the system, with guns and all that. So this is an actual recruitment system for yeah. the long run. Yeah. And calling it education is ridiculously cynical. Mm. That is just outright propaganda. It's outright recruitment and we shouldn't call it any other thing. And the fact that it's targeting the most vulnerable and the purest ever beings in the country it makes it even more outrageous. Yeah. I've been thinking for a, quite a while now that Putin is converting Russia into a, a huge version of North Korea or something like that. Yes. He's indoctrinating the whole country. Yeah. And apparently starting at a very, very young age. Yeah. Because it's I- one thing to have control over the media and control people through the boxes, but starting it at school at that early an age, it, it's it's just I I I, I don't know what to say. Mm, terrible. Mm-hmm. All right. So more bad news. Mm, Only you. partially related to the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So as we have predicted before on this podcast, measles is coming back big time. We had the latest European epidemic in 2016-2018. We reported extensively about that at the time. But now also uh, WHO and UNICEF are warning that it is 
coming back. Sometimes you don't want to be right. This year, the number of measles cases have increased by 80% worldwide. Measles is tricky. And we've talked about that before as well, because it's so very contagious. Vaccination rates need to be at 95% or above. Otherwise, you don't have the disease under control. It's very hard to get to that level, of course, because of lack of education and because of lack of resources, also because of vaccine hesitancy driven by anti-vaxxers, and now also because of the COVID pandemic that has stopped or taken focus from a number of vaccine programs all over the world. Also, as everybody knows, here in Europe at the moment, we have a war and It just so happens to be in one of Europe's least vaccinated countries. And in the previous epidemic, Ukraine was hit hardest in Europe when it comes to cases per capita. And now, understandably, they have other priorities than getting vaccinated. Millions of refugees are now on the move from Ukraine into the rest of Europe, a Europe who hasn't done too well themselves lately when it comes to measles vaccinations. So looking worldwide, so what we're going to see, or what the big risk is now, that a lot of people, refugees coming from Ukraine, not being vaccinated, come to the rest of Europe, who is not sufficiently vaccinated, and you know what will happen. We will have a measles epidemic. And it's not just Europe. If you look worldwide, Certain countries in West Africa, especially Afghanistan is another example. They are seeing huge increases of measles cases right now. It's already happening. We will see this also in Europe very, very soon. Yeah. It's it's going to be difficult to go back where we were, especially because before the pandemic, measles vaccination, the vaccination schedules were going pretty well with the exception of a couple of countries, right? Yeah, so, but even even Ukraine, they actually shaped up after the big epidemic in 2016 to 2018. Yes, they yes. actually got their act together and started to vaccinate people. But now... And, and now it's this, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So staying a little bit longer in Ukraine, do you remember when you talked a couple of weeks ago about the ghost of Kiev? Yes, I did. I okay, so remember that. Yeah. Yeah, so the the hero stories they don't die. I mean, we often mention and we often talk about the the misinformation and all the fake news and propaganda on one side on Putin's side, but we often graciously yeah, turn our heads away <laughs> when it's on the the Ukrainian side. Mm. Well, there is a photo circulating on the interwebs and on Facebook and elsewhere of a woman who is claimed to have blown up 52 Russian tanks in the war. Ah, a new Kiev ghost. Yes, so it's a new Kiev ghost. Mm-hmm. She's being referred to as this Ukrainian beauty who blew up 42 invading Russian tanks. But uh, Reuters decided that it's spreading so fast, this uh, kind of news, that uh, they had to do something about that. And uh, they started a fact-checking effort. And they found the image, the original image, that could be traced back to March 2021. There are several medals hanging from top of her shirt. So she's a, a very acclaimed individual somewhere in the system. And the name, as Reuters found out, was Major Victoria Palamarchuk. And she's a traumatologist. 
and she has been working with the Ukrainian Medical Service since 2014. Probably not the one person that uh, has blown up 52 tanks. Oh. Yeah, so the verdict of the fact check is that is no proof that, first of all, there is one person having blown up 52 tanks, and there is also no proof for this person being the same woman, because that woman happens to be a medic. And even if she decided to go up in arms, it's not believable without any further evidence. However, they do state that there have been a lot of losses of tanks on the, the Russian side in this conflict. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense stated that 773 tanks have already been destroyed by them. Mm-hmm. Really, really big losses there, but probably not this woman. Not by so this lady. spread the no. word, it's probably not Victoria Palamarchuk. No, it's a joint effort. By the way, did you see that Ukraine has confirmed that the ghost of Kiev was not real as well? So oh, they, nice. they are have owned up to that uh, fact that there's no ghost of Kiev. The pilot who has said to yeah, have yeah. shot down all of those planes, that there's no such person and they have admitted that yeah and it's it's very good that they did i mean i, I mean so. that yeah. that raises the level of credibility that they have and imagine putin saying something like that <laughs> oh yeah mm-hmm. oh, yeah yeah i confirmed that it wasn't there no 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 all right yeah let's leave for the moment leave uh, ukraine russia behind yeah. And talk about other bad stuff. (laughs) In episode 314, we gave Meta a really wrong award. And we mentioned an organization then called IM Academy. And Mm -hmm. and IM Academy is a cross between a pyramid scheme and a cryptocurrency scam. (laughs) Sounds very lucrative to me. And what they do is that they lure people into nonsense, almost like a sect. It's Mm sect-like. And our friend Bob in Spain sent us some links about IM Academy in Spain. So thank you very much for that, Bob. On 9th of April, in the city of Badalona, just north of Barcelona, I hadn't heard of Badalona before, but anyway, <laughs> in, that, in the city of Badalona, which is almost Barcelona, but not quite, IM Academy held a large international event attracting over 9,000 people from all over Europe. Most of them young. They're being lured out of school in some cases by promises of making lots of money very quickly. By First first you pay for, for a course and then you pay for another course, but you can get that money back by selling courses to other people. That's why it's sort of a pyramid scheme. You sell... Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and these courses uh, supposedly teach you how to make a lot of money by dealing in cryptocurrency. That That's the scheme. It's very much a Ponzi scheme, as we usually call, usually call them, but taking to another level. And uh, you're forced to, to lure other people into the system. That's the pyramid kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Parents and friends to these people who get involved in this movement or this organization are now reporting that it's very sect-like. It's a very special way of talking between people within this organization. You are encouraged to alienate everyone you're in close contact with if they dare to question the whole setup. IM Academy has already been banned from offering financial services and products in Belgium, at least, maybe in other countries as well. 
Hopefully more countries will follow suit. But don't fall for this, guys. This yeah. is just a scam. Cryptocurrency, in any case, is very, very uncertain. There is no certain way of making money on that. You can just as well lose everything you have. And then when you're forced to sell to others and they are forced to sell to others, then it's pyramid scheme and it's uh, no good. Don't do it. Don't do it. Be very, very careful. Yeah, with all kinds of MLM systems. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, that's the the term, multi-level marketing, yeah. Yeah, some of them do sell products that could be useful, but it's never the product that it's in the center of the whole system. It's uh, it's about building the the pyramid. (laughs) Well-known scam, don't fall for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Good news? stepping out. Yeah, no, no, unfortunately (laughs) not. Stepping out into the international field, there is somewhat of a concern being raised by uh, the ECDC, the, Euro- the European the Centre for Disease. No, not the rock group. It's the but they they can they rock. I mean, <laughs> um, in in terms of professionalism, but it's the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. Ah, the ECDC. All right. The WHO as well has issued their concern that uh, something is going around in the world and that is a lot of cases of an hepatitis of an unknown origin mm-hmm. when i say an unknown origin it means that the usual viral causes for hepatitis a b c d and e they have been excluded so laboratory tests show that it's not the usual things I have to remind you that hepatitis means a liver inflammation. So it's not a specific infection. It's a specific condition of the liver or a disease of the liver, but not a specific infection. There can be several different infections causing this. And the concern is coming from the fact that they could not identify so far what these very, very quickly growing numbers of cases are being caused by. As of the end of April, worldwide, there have been 170 cases of um, this uh, situation. Well, most of them in the UK, but there are several other countries as well. Uh, Austria, Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland. So so all over the place. This is cause for concern and all the experts are working on trying to figure out how to deal with this and identifying the cause, the root cause of all this. But obviously, people of the internet... I think it's aliens. ...are coming to the rescue. Yeah, yeah, aliens. But now we have a better reason. Yeah, those who come to the rescue, they claim that it's obviously the COVID-19 vaccinations that Uh have been causing this. The only problem is with that is that most cases have been reported in children, very, very young children. Who weren't so vaccinated. Most of them were too Fantastic. young to even get vaccinated. Yeah. So that's one thing that um, excludes the possibility of this <laughs> being caused by COVID-19 vaccination. The rationale behind that is that some kids have tested positive for adenoviruses. And adenoviruses is a specific group of viruses that were used by several of the vaccination types. So Johnson & Johnson, for example, used that, used an adenovirus as a viral vector for the um, genetic information. 
But not only them, although some of the Facebook posts have claimed that it's specifically the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but not only that, it's the Russian Sputnik V vaccine as well that has used adenoviruses as vectors. So um, the connection could be made, but obviously that's just the usual, very classic way of thinking that I hear something familiar and I make the connection and I jump right to the conclusion that... The two are definitely connected and related to each other. But there are so many adenoviruses out there that basing that assumption only on the fact that it's an adenovirus that has been identified in some of the patients and not all of them. Hmm. So we still don't know. And hepatitis is a very serious thing. It needs to be taken care of and it needs, it needs to be stopped before it gets even worse. It's a good thing that the experts of uh, the ECDC and the WHO are on it. Yeah, don't spread misinformation about things like this. It's <laughs> much more serious and much more important than that. All right. So I'm going to return to a, a story which originates way before any Ukraine war, way before any pandemic. The first couple of years of this podcast, we talked a lot about Paolo Macchiarini. Oh, yeah. The Italian research fraudster, I would dare to say, who was working at Karolinska in Stockholm, which is a research and also a hospital. He was employed both as a researcher and as a surgeon there. And because and I'm bringing it up because there are new developments, legal ones. And I think we need to follow this story through to the bitter end because we talked so much about it in the past. I'll, I'll try to make the background short so it makes sense for new listeners or, or listeners who may have forgotten by now. In uh, 2011 and 2012, Macchiarini performed a new type of operations on people who had problems with their trachea, so in the, in the throat. Mm-hmm. He replaced the patient's tracheas with artificial ones, and those were uh, coated in stem cells. And the idea was that the stem cells would make it so that the body didn't reject these artificial new things in the body. He had published papers showing that he had gotten this to work in animal models. Uh, I believe it was rats. The big problem was that uh, all the research was fake. He had never done that particular method of in any animals and so it was all fake all and the patient tragically died reportedly in much suffering after that some of these operations were done even earlier before he came to uh, Karolinska and also some after he was he, he left Karolinska Wikipedia lists 12 patients but this legal case that is now coming up is about the three cases he performed uh, at Karolinska in Sweden. Uh, Of course, this was a big scandal. Also because Karolinska Institute tried to cover it up. So as an aside note, uh, they got the big shame award from the Swedish skeptics, confounder of the year. That was in 2016. Anyway, there was was an initial legal investigation, of course, uh, against Macchiarini. But that was eventually shelved for some reason. I don't know if they didn't find enough proof or they couldn't get it to to work. However, as we reported in episode 243, that's more than one and a half years ago, the case has been reopened and I don't know why legal things take such a long time. But finally, this week, 
the trial against Macchiarini has actually started. And we will, of course, report on how it ends. But the prosecution was not very kind in their description of what had happened. They said that what Macchiarini did resulted in prolonged and severe suffering of the patients. And he has shown, Macchiarini has shown, special indifference and disregard for them, the patients. And they also said he basically performed human experiments. (laughs) Not. Uh, what you want on your CV. Yeah, there is a special procedure to go through with that and you have to acquire a special permission for that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, right. It's, then, <laughs> it's a long and arduous process. There's a way to do these things. And you can't <laughs> yeah. skip and you can't cut corners or people will die. All right. So, I'd like to finish on something that is very positive. Ooh, yeah, finally. But I will not leave the topic of education. In the UK, a very interesting decision has been made by the government, and it is to introduce a new subject into the list of general certificate of secondary educations that you can get, also known as GCSEs. That will be the study of animals and plants, also being referred to as natural history. So a GCSE in natural history will be introduced soon. Why it's very important is because the education secretary has made it clear that they have been dealing with the issue that the people have a disconnect with nature. And that shows exactly what the problem could be with solving a lot of different problems when it comes to education and communication. If people are not sensitive enough to a certain topic, then they will not really pay attention to it and not really deal with it. And obviously, one thing that we need to deal with more is the loss of biodiversity and the loss of healthy environments and obviously climate change. But without the actual touch, without that personal connection to nature, you cannot achieve that. And even though it's probably not going to be that kind of an academic subject as some of the other subjects are, like doing a GCSE in science, it's different, but it will mean that you spend more time out and about You will be out in nature trying to do stuff that early natural historians like Charles Darwin and people like the great David Attenborough did. (laughs) I mean, I mean, he's a natural historian as well. He's a naturalist. It sounds very unacademic and doesn't sound very serious, but it's a very important and serious step forward to bring nature back to people's lives and make them realize how important it is to be in a good relationship with nature and to take care of our natural surroundings. Yeah, it's much more important than the academic knowledge. And this is coming from a skeptic (laughs) and one who teaches science. (laughs) Okay. So yes, it's more important to have a hands-on kind of connection. Yeah, so well done. I really applaud this um, decision. This will be in collaboration with the the government's strategy for sustainability and climate change advocates. So it's really going to be a good thing, I think. All right. right. But that's all about the news. Well, some of them have been pretty old, waiting for a while, because last week we didn't do a regular episode. But we, we wanted to tell you all about these. But now it's time for us to find out who's been really wrong lately. 
Yes, I, I think it's interesting to think how history will report on the era that we are now experiencing. And what I'm referring to is the post-truth era, which mm-hmm. I naively for a long time was just thinking, I was thinking about Trump and his followers and some American Republicans on the very far right. But I, I think now we can see that it's spread mainly to politicians, I think also to, to other parts of the society, but politicians is what's most visible. And of course, now again, we have to talk about Russia. So when Putin started to talk about denazifying Ukraine, I think a lot of us thought, and I thought it was just a ridiculous joke, almost something to laugh about because it sounded so crazy. But that was apparently just the beginning. And he really meant it. And he meant for people to take it seriously. So now, of course, we have his crony and main talking head idiot, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, doubling down and taking this to unbelievable extremes. When he was asked by a journalist how Ukraine could possibly need to be denazified when they have a Jewish president, he didn't even flinch. What then came out of his mouth with a straight face is so preposterous that I don't know what to say about this. He replied that Hitler was of Jewish descent. And then he said, quote, wise Jewish people say that the most ardent anti-Semites are usually Jews, end quote. Mm-hmm. This is crazy talk. It is ridiculous. It is like pointing to the blue sky and saying it's, really green and has purple elephants all over it. (laughs) How can you possibly even have a conversation with a person that talks like this? (laughs) Actually, they say it's it's the trope that scientists are baffled. This skeptic is baffled of the the thing this guy is saying. And um, just straight-faced. No, (laughs) Hitler was a Jew. What are you talking (laughs) about? And what does it even have to do with anything? Even if it was true, which it of course isn't. There is one thing that uh, I think there is something about Hitler's grandfather on his paternal side is not well documented. So perhaps he could have been Jewish. What does it matter? Doesn't matter anything. (sighs) I get upset. Yeah, so, yeah, you uh, worked yourself up pretty much pretty well. Yeah, but, <laughs> but how can I not be upset with people mm. like that? Yeah, so, I understand. This sorry excuse of Putin's talking hand puppet, shamelessly not even pretending to be a thinking human being, Sergei Lavrov gets today's award for being so wrong that there are no words to describe him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I. Uh, whenever I see a video or anything with him, I decide not to go for it because I would. I don't really would. I had the same reaction every time I did. <laughs> so um, no, 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 no. I'm not working myself up uh, okay. because of because of that guy. And yeah, I'm right. pretty sure that he knows he's lying. So yeah, he's, he must he's, be. he's lying I mean, through his teeth. The, yes, yes. So you can't have an, an honest discussion with a person like that. No, no, no. Now, if if they can say whatever nonsense there. Well, also, I have a small bonus story. <laughs> yeah, okay. Also about Russia. If if Lavrov is really wrong, then this is another Russian bonus bad. Maybe if you have a new <laughs> <laughs> category <laughs> called bonus bad. Someone, presumably uh, some sorry Putin lackey, has put up posters 
uh, at the bus stops, for some reason, around the Swedish embassy in Moscow. The posters depict the former king of Sweden, or actually the the one before the former king of Sweden. Uh, Also, there's a picture of uh, Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman, Mm -hmm. also of IKEA founder Ingvar Kamprad, and, sorry about this, Annika, I know you're a big fan, Swedish author of Pippi Longstocking, Astrid Lindgren. (laughs) And the header says on these posters, says, uh, quote, we are against Nazism, but they are not, end quote. And then there's a list of these people. <laughs> uh, and, and then there are uh, some out-of-context quotes to make it all credible. Obviously, I actually have some sort of reservation against Ingvar Kamprad. I think he, was a, 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 he had Nazi sympathies way back when. Doesn't matter. They're all dead. All yeah. of them are dead. But the reason for putting this up is, of course, to whip up some sort of anti-Swedish propaganda. We are also now apparently all Nazis in Sweden, believe it or not. And, uh, well, don't believe it. But only only because you are about to join NATO, right? That's right. (laughs) We have supported Ukraine. We have actually sent weaponry to Ukraine, which is unheard of for Sweden, Mm -hmm. who's tried to be neutral for, well, hundreds of years almost, I don't know, for a very, very long time. Uh, We have supported Ukraine even with weapons, and uh, we are now very likely joining NATO, and this is uh, the response from Russia. Uh Totally unbelievable. But unfortunately not surprising. That's right. Right. It's not surprising, it's just unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, thank you very much for that, Pontus. I don't know and if you should yeah, thank me for that, but... Yeah, but, but <laughs> for, for bringing this to our attention. And um, yeah, Onika's not here to say it, so I'm going to say it. It's well-deserved. <laughs> okay. But we have to finish the episode on a quote. Obviously, I would like to bring in a quote from the great David Attenborough. And he says... In my position, you can't go out and just say, I think, because it's a very serious thing. So if you get up and say climate is changing because of carbon dioxide emissions, you'd better bloody well be right. (laughs) That's right. Don't just say, I think this is happening. I think this. No, don't think like that. Yeah, especially, yeah, in his position, in your position, exactly. When people believe you, when people follow you, when people think you are an authority people listen to you then you have an obligation to be right and by right i'm not saying that the kind of right that uh, lavrov and uh, putin <laughs> thinks they are but no. you have to have the facts on your side that's for sure all right yeah. so and on that note i think this is the end of this episode so thank you very much pontus for joining me today thank you Many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so and don't forget to spread the word. And until next week, when hopefully, hopefully we have Annika back. Yeah. Goodbye. Hey, do. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats 
to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. In the previous pandemic, sorry, in the previous, <laughs> previous? Premius? Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, it's premius. a good word. Yeah. Should be a word, I think. Premius. <laughs> or uh, as Lavrov would have described him, the famous Nazi. The famous Nazi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sir mm-hmm. David Attenborough. Yeah. Jesus.